Good evening, everybody. Welcome to episode eight of the Mental Health Break podcast. I am your host, Tom Holzerman, or TH, if you will. Before we get to our guest this evening, we got a good guest for you. Uh, all my guests are good, but, you know, this guy's very good, too. I, I have something to say about recent happenings. I know I do this podcast in my newsletter as an escape from real life, but uh, sometimes things happen and you can't ignore what's going on in the real world. And I'm talking about this unprecedented spate of judicial activism by the United States Supreme Court. There will be millions upon untold millions affected by their decisions. Namely, the decision they said, if you live within 100 miles of the border, you will um, forfeit your right to privacy in your home. Then there was the um, decision against the EPA, where they deregulate it like conservatives always like to do. But the most heinous, in my in my opinion, decision, the one that has been a mascot issue for the American right for 50 years, is their overturning of Roe versus Wade. Roe versus Wade guaranteed federal protection for those seeking an abortion in the United States for women, trans men, and non-binary persons who can carry children. It's a term. And since then, states where the Republican Party has a stranglehold on local and state-level politics because of unfair gerrymandering, and voter suppression have eroded these rights away to the point where now a corrupt Supreme Court, seven members of which have been appointed by men who held the office of the presidency without winning the popular vote and who are undemocratically elected to a lifetime position where they can unduly affect the lives of millions upon millions of Americans and billions more around the world with their policy decisions and their judgments have decided to overstep their boundaries with little to no resistance from a Democratic Party that controls the presidency, the Senate, and the House of Representatives. Uh, I can not condemn this entire situation with strong enough words as a cishet male citizen of this country, I realize my rights are the last that will be coming to danger. However, I am enraged on behalf of my friends and my family members and all those in this country who I have not, not met, but feel a kinship with because of their humanity, our shared humanity. And I am enraged, and I am sick to death, and I also know that my words mean scant little in the grand scheme of things, except to offer comfort to those whom are, who are afflicted. I urge you, listeners of this podcast, readers of my newsletter, to do what you can to help the afflicted people by these heinous decisions. This is not a call to vote. We, 
voted for Joe Biden with the promise that he would codify Roe versus Wade. You voted for Barack Obama with the, with the promise that he would codify Roe versus Wade. You voted for Bill Clinton, maybe not we because I wasn't old enough, but people voted for Bill Clinton with the hopes that he would codify Roe versus Wade. People voted for Jimmy Carter with the promise that he would codify Roe versus Wade. The Democratic Party has failed at every level. So now it is in our hands. Do what you can. Do what you must. In lieu of saying things that will get me in trouble, maybe get my guests in trouble, I only strongly urge you to protest. And if you choose to protest, do it safely. Do not bring a cell phone with you. Do not leave your tattoos, scars, or anything that could identify you uncovered. Protest. Give money to mutual aid funds that will help legal, uh, the legal fight that will help at least keep protesters and those organizing out of jail. And that will just help those in need who need it most right now and in the future for the long fight ahead. Because trust me, this is a long fight. You can't defeat fascism at the ballot box. You can't defeat fascism with strongly worded editorials or songs sung outside the Capitol. We need to fight, and we need to do it correctly. That's all I have to say on the matter. If you disagree with me on this matter, go fuck yourself. Thank you very much. And now, on a lighter note, uh, my guest this evening is, has his own podcast, the Start Stop. Uh, no, I'm sorry, the Select Start Podcast. Um, I was a guest on it. Um, couple weeks ago comprehensive video game podcast where he has people on and he talks to them about um you know their favorite games and what uh how it shaped them and a whole bunch of other crazy fun stuff a lot of, a lot of uh, fun divergences he also um it's a budding youtube uh youtube guy although i don't use that term derogatorily because <laughs> his youtube videos are used for good and, you know, he's an all-around presence on Twitter.com. Uh, please welcome to the show, Kiefer. How are you doing, Kiefer? Uh, good, Andrew. How are you? Uh, well, first of all, how are you doing? I'm doing fine. Thank you for asking. Of course. And I did want to take this time to also express solidarity solidarity with all those affected by, uh, we'll say, recent circumstances. Uh, reality finds a new way of getting worse every day. And I just uh, wish everyone safety and good fortune uh, within your communities and to please, please uh, count on each other because the powers that be don't want us to organize. So community now is more important than ever. Um, please keep yourself and the people around you safe. That's that's just a, a small thing I want to say at the very top here. I appreciate that. Uh, community fraternity. And, and in lieu of anything else, I'm going to uh, find some links for mutual aid to put in the show notes. So you want to uh, help out monetarily, you can do that. Um, I guess first thing we can talk about, um, the video game that is sweeping the nation right now. Um, talking about that Ninja Turtles game, Shredder's Revenge. Uh, <laughs> you got that yet? Uh, so I have Game Pass right now, but last two weeks have been incredibly uh, crazy for me. I was just went to an out-of-town wedding, came back from that, uh, and have been in the process of recording this very... Uh, 
unique episode of this podcast that's going to be really exciting to come out, but it has taken away from my uh, game time a bit. So I am super excited to play it. I have it downloaded, but uh, not yet. Have you played it? I'm going to get it when my next paycheck comes in, which hopefully by the time this podcast drops, I think I, I will have gotten paid again. I don't know what's going to be the 29th or the 30th this month, but um, mm-hmm. I, I am super stoked for this uh, for this game, mainly because I remember video games from when I was a kid. Um, <laughs> uh, way back in the day, um, I think it was maybe before you were born, if, if I remember correctly, um, there was a Ninja Turtles arcade game, and they ported that to the NES. And I spent hours upon hours playing that game. It was I was just so enamored with the Ninja Turtles when I was a kid. Uh, the first run of cartoons. Um, for those who don't know, the Ninja Turtles started life out as a comic that was dark and edgy. And, um, you know, the comic that we, the uh, cartoons that we know today, all the, all the different cartoons and movies, far cry from that. I think Shredder may have only been around for like one, one comic arc. And, um, but never to let a, a good property fall by the wayside. Um, people had the bright idea to do as they did in the, in the late 80s and early 90s, make cartoon out of it. And the cartoon, although it was entertaining, it was irreverent, it was funny, it was, you know, cool. A departure from the comic book series tone. But that's the one, that's the, uh, the adaptation that sort of uh, caught on. So there was the first uh, NES game, which was, um, in a word, difficult. Have you ever played the first Ninja Turtles game for Nintendo? No, I haven't played the original. I played the beat-em-up games, but that, you're talking about the one that's kind of like a side-scrolling sort of platformer, right? Yeah, it's like a combo platformer. Uh, like, there's an overworld. It's almost like Zelda 2 in a way. Yeah, I, that's a good comparison. I haven't played it, but it has been a fixture in a lot of uh, infamous uh, I would say archives of like infamously bad games. Oh yeah, um, I wouldn't call it a bad game though, and that's this is my personal opinion. Um, if I spent a lot of time with the game, I could never think it was bad. Mm-hmm. And I spent a lot of time with this game. I guy guy, I got to know it. Um, it was difficult though. Right. I I don't think I ever got past the damn stage. D A M, not as in goddamn, but uh, yeah. <laughs> although it wasn't goddamn stage, let me tell you. I don't think I got past that until after I grew up. Mm. Um, then the second game was, it was an arcade game first, but it was a classic beat-em-up game. And they they generally, I don't want to say they don't make beat-em-up games anymore because, like, you know all about the AAA industry and, and, and the indie game industry. And, you know, if you say they, they don't make beat-em-up games anymore, someone's going to get in your mentions and tell you all the beat-em-up games they made. But it just seems like most of the acclaimed games now feel like they've departed from that. Mm-hmm. And they, were, they were all fun games. And they, like the Ninja Turtles game was the, the uh, Ninja Turtles 2, uh, the arcade game, which is what was called, the arcade game. And uh, Turtles in Time, I think, was the next one. That was another beat-em-up style game. But, uh, like, it was, you know, it was the pinnacle of the genre you know i played through double dragon and a couple of other games and double dragon was fun probably gets forgotten among the talk of the great games you know when people get on their nostalgia trips you know people talk about contra rightfully people talk about mario 3 rightfully tecmo super bowl rightfully 
But Double Dragon falls to the cra- cracks. That was a pretty good game. But Turtles 2 was incredible. Um, great soundtrack, uh, bright, bright, colorful graphics. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Turtles looked like Turtles, you know. So now Shredder's Revenge has built off of that. Um, same sort of style, uh, colorful, cartoony. Only now you can play as Casey Jones, Splinter, or April O'Neil. Which, <laughs> oh man, that's um. I guess I could, uh, I guess see April because April and Splinter. I think Casey Jones might be reaching a little bit, but I mean, I'm not, gonna, that, uh... yeah, I'm not going to pass up the chance to play with a guy on a hockey mask and a hockey stick and a goalie stick, you know. Sure. Why do you think that Casey Jones is a bit of a reach? Maybe I just have a different relationship with the Turtles, but I want to hear your take on it. Uh, well, when I was young, mm-hmm. uh, I watched the, the cartoons, and April was in every episode. Splinter was in every episode. Uh, Shredder and Krang were in every episode. They're, they're, they're antagonists. Casey Jones, to me, was sort of like an ancillary character. He was like the Neutrinos and, and Usagi Yojimbo. Uh, actually, Usagi Yojimbo was like his own thing, and he just sort of guest starred on the Ninja Turtle show. Mm-hmm. I thought Casey Jones was, I guess this is the old guy, old fogey to be talking, but um, I know Casey Jones was a big fixture in the movies, uh, Elias Cotius. I don't remember the actor. It's been like years since I watched the live action films, but I'm more familiar with the 2002 iteration because uh, I was born in 96 uh, for the listeners. You were ta- you were alluding to it earlier, different, different time, different era. So I was like six years old when there was like a more anime uh take on the Ninja Turtles property. And Casey Jones was a big fixture of that. And then I also grew up on those uh, early 90s movies where Casey Jones was a fixture of that. So I guess for me, it's a no-brainer. But I guess if you watch the 80s, early 90s cartoon, he's not remotely the same kind of character there or like as uh, present, so to speak. Yeah. He was uh, very much, you know, a guest character, which is fine. I guess you want to you wanna pump up the, uh, the options. It, I'm not going to complain about having options in a beat 'em up game or a fighting game, you know. Yeah. I um obsessed. I'm obsessed with finding Mortal Kombat, um, the, the Championship Edition Ultimate, whatever, with all the all the 2D characters in it. Like, and I, mm-hmm. I remember playing that on my Genesis when I was younger. Um, but I guess we can cycle back to this. So <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to have you on it again. We can talk about it again. Uh, but I'm just excited for it. Um, I guess we can talk about there's a sort of uh, like these indie studios and some of the AAA studios are sort of cycling back to retro style games. And do you, what do you what do you think about that trend? Do you think it's sort of like they're cheaping out a little bit, or do you think they're making these games to be big enough so that they could be like? worthy of having the file size playing on this system with so much power that they could, you know, where a game like Hollow Knight, you know, would be, would probably have to be like five different, five different cartridges in a series on the NES. Right. So I think expensive game with a little bit of DLC thrown in on the switch or steam or whatever. So I think there's like a combination of factors that's like causing this trend with beat em up specifically. I think it's sort of like a, the generation of people growing up in the 90s are now fully adults who are ingratiated in the industry and have a nostalgia for these older style of games, and they're very dedicated to bringing them back. So in the case of, I mean, you see this in the early 2010s, and it's had a re-release recently, but the accompanying 
uh, Scott Pilgrim versus the World video game. That was a beat em up in the style of those uh, late 80s, early 90s beat em up games. And with, uh, you know, the Ninja Turtle beat em up game, uh, Shredder's Revenge, um, that's the, I, I think it's the same company that's developing it or like has a share of the same developers as that Scott Pilgrim game uh, coming in. And in the case of both, I mean, it is a franchise that are that is popular with a group of people. So there is an on-ramp into that. So there's, you know, the money motivation, but the people developing it can like, number one, if they're fans of the property, they can really put a lot of uh, enthusiasm into making the product, but also there's nostalgia tied up in it with Ninja Turtles. I mean, that is a franchise that has, you know, a big sway on probably three different generations now, you know, late or like the, the last legs of the late Gen X, uh, millennials and now now the current gen z because they still make ninja turtles cartoons and movies and it's kind of unbelievable that this has such staying power when it started as a a daredevil uh parody um <laughs> it's yeah. like it, in a way it's bigger than daredevil oh they got way bigger than daredevil um, yeah which is a shame because uh i, I will even talk i'm gonna cycle back to because the daredevil show on netflix was like one of my favorites mm-hmm. that's been created in this run of of Marvel Disney supremacy. But, um, but yeah, I mean, it's just amazing that it has staying power and, you know, things from the nines that have staying power. Like Turtles never really had, uh, I think their staying power to me is so much more fascinating because if you look at like Super Mario brothers, right. Mm -hmm. That had the full heft of Nintendo behind it. That's Nintendo's Disney. And, you know, Pokemon, similar. Um, But the Ninja Turtles, like, what IP, what IP farm is sort of hitching their shit to the Ninja Turtles, right? You can't really pin it down. Yeah, I don't don't really, I don't know. I mean, like, I sort of lumped that in with, like, the same thing as, um, you know, with Transformers and My Little Pony. It's just, like, something that you can catch up to the times with fairly easily because the template isn't, I mean, it's not necessarily universal, but it is something that's always going to appeal to kids. It's anthropomorphic ninjas in New York city fighting whatever you can throw at it. Mutants, aliens, uh, rabbit, samurai. It, it, I, I, I see why it would appeal to irreverent children. Yeah. They, um, I mean, and there, there's a lot of people, a lot of franchises that you think would have stuck around and they haven't. Um, but I guess it speaks to the kind of quality that people, I mean, they've been made, they've been making outside those Michael Bay movies, which I haven't seen, but, and people, it, they hit or miss. Um, but like generally the quality of these Ninja Turtle stuff has been good. Like you talk about, Oh, He-Man that's right for sort of like people love swords and magic, but outside of the, even the original run was, was kind of like, just gruel that they mashed up to sell toys. You know, we kind of look back, I look back at it at with, with, with rose colored glasses because I had all the toys. Mm-hmm. So I could, I could sort of build my own head cannons in my, in my bedroom with, you know, my He-Man toy and all the different characters. And you could argue there hasn't ever been a good adaptation of He-Man until Kevin Smith of all people did it with revelation uh, last year. Yeah, He-Man wasn't anything that I was drawn to as a kid. That was another thing that had an early 2000s reboot, and I wasn't into it the same way I was into things like uh, Ninja Turtles or whatever the anime iteration of Transformers was at the time. 
Um, but I think it really has to do with sort of like, you know, in the, the bones of something. And that's not to say that Skeletor doesn't have bones, but <laughs> if I think that there is like a visual number simplicity, but also draw to the Ninja Turtles that makes it instantly appealing. Whereas with He-Man, it's a lot of conflicting visual styles for like each of the central protagonists. And then I don't know. And uh, you know, the fact that the show initial run was made on the cheap and it was very, I, I maybe it just didn't have the soul initially just to push it over the edge and to have that staying power. It's sort of endured because you know, it's a property from the eighties that people would have nostalgia for the same way they would with uh, the other stuff that was airing around that time. But you know, I, I can understand why it'd be such a challenge to adapt if you didn't have an approach or a hook to it. Yeah, and with He-Man, there's there's so much lore that could have been built into it, right? Um, you know, swords and magic, and I think the, the one series that did such a really good job of creating a lore out of toy commercials was the sister series, uh, She-Ra. And Noel Stevenson did She-Ra and the Princesses of Power. She turned sort of the way that they tried to market He-Man stuff to girls. Um, and she turned into this powerful story about revolution, liberation, um, about, um, you know, learning to, to speak in truth to power. And then, of course, you know, same-sex uh, relationships and, and queer love. Right. So, like, I think that when the bar gets set for those kinds of adaptations, like, She-Ra sets it real, real high. Yeah, I'm a fan of cartoons, if that's not immediately apparent to the people listening to it. Um, grew up with them. I've stuck with them for a while. And, like, if something draws me in, I, I'm totally down to watch it. And I, you know, super respect everything that Noel Stevenson has done to sort of push the boundaries on a cartoon that... Um, you know, there's a lot of baggage when you're adapting something. And, you know, unfortunately, she's, uh, you know, she and the rest of the crew have been on the receiving end of a lot of, uh, you know, unfair hate because it's, you know, they're approaching it like they are making a cartoon for children. And while, you know, it's not a hyper violent thing, like, uh, as I understand the uh, He-Man reboot to be, but there's a space for that. And then there's also space for... I have a concept that I want to explore with this property and I'm going to give it its own unique visual identity and I'm going to make it for this specific generation of kids. I think it's very successful in that. I uh, didn't stick with the series for very long just because it's skewed a little young for my personal sensibilities. And that's not a criticism of a cartoon because they're primarily for kids, but there's a lot of really neat uh, concepts in there and that central dynamic between She-Ra and Catra and the visual updates that they made to those styles. It's, it's memorable. I see why it has such a popularity with kids and teens and young adults. Yes. And, um, I watched it not because I, I want, I, I, I'm notoriously fickle when it comes to seeking out new shows. Mm -hmm. um, I, I watched the He-Man revelation show just because it got some buzz and because I was a He-Man fanatic. Um, I have a seven year old daughter, Right. And she wanted to watch it. You know, most of the stuff I watch nowadays is because of my kids. Um, either that or it's, you know, the old Donald Trump tweet. You know, I'm not happy with Coke right now. <laughs> drinking that garbage. Sure. And that's just me with Marvel and Disney, you know. Disney, Star Wars, Marvel. Um, I haven't watched Obi-Wan yet. I'm going to binge that. 
it's and I'll binge Miss Marvel when that finishes up too. Yeah, Obi Wan's not like anything remarkable, unfortunately. It didn't do anything for me, and I say that as a huge fan of Star Wars, but don't feel rushed to get to it. Use your free time how you want to use it. Well, with you, it's like um, so there's like two two sides of the Star Wars coin that I deal with. Not you know, there's many sides, and most of them are garbage. Uh, right. <laughs> I don't deal with the people who are like the last Jedi was bad because girls and blacks. No, I, I, um, I deal with, you know, people who I, I deal with who don't like the last Jedi. I don't like it because of more mature reasons, artistic reasons. I may not agree with, agree with whatever, but there's two people, two sides. There's the star Wars DM that we're both in mm-hmm. with, um, you know, Manu is in there. He was on the, on the podcast. I think Trevor Strunk's in there too. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a bunch of us in there who sort of like, yeah, we still watch it, but eh, I can see the Disney rot coming in. And then there's the people like my my ex-wife um, and, you know, people I follow on Twitter who they watch it and they just watch it to enjoy it. And I'm sort of torn between both camps, but I guess uh, I'm, I'm in one camp. I'm sort of in the former, I'm in the latter camp because I love the Mandalorian. Um, right. And I'm in the DM camp for oh, for both of uh, so I say both of Fed up both, <laughs> both of these Fets, yeah. Because <laughs> <laughs> that show was just like garbage unless they had unless it was Mandalorian season two point five. So yeah, I think the um, like I'm not the kind of person that's like fuck everything that this Disney um, fuck all the Disney moving forward content. It's it's bullshit and I hate it. Like if there's nuance to it, I don't like their approach to they're creating things because their philosophy just seems to be we have a property let's milk it for all it's worth and just oversaturate it without concern for quality but that doesn't mean that no good stuff has come out of it i quite enjoyed visions uh the last jedi is one of if not my favorite star wars movie uh and then there's little things after that i like rebels a lot too and there's just in the Mandalorian, of course, I quite enjoy the Mandalorian, but there is also like the, there's the really just interminable stuff like book of Boba Fett. And then the, um, as Twitter, uh, elegantly puts it, the glup shittoism of star Wars, where it's sort of, sort of like, we're showing you something you recognize and you're going ape shit for that, but there's nothing behind the cardboard cutout. We are. And then there's also the angle underneath that where CGI, uh, <laughs> Fuck creations are just made where they turn Luke Skywalker into an action figure that moves around and has a voice, but it isn't him uh, because people did not like the fact that uh, Mark Hamill's interpretation of The Last Jedi, uh, Mark Tur- sorry, Mark Hamill's uh, portrayal in The Last Jedi made him complicated and nuanced. So now he's an action figure. He can't hurt your feelings anymore. He's he, Com- complicated yeah. and nuanced like he was in episodes four, five, and most of six. <laughs> yeah, no, he was the the guy is having a, a a crisis internally because of stuff going on, and he's being a baby about it. That's the Luke Skywalker I know actually perfectly. Yeah, um, but yeah, I mean, like, I'm not the kind of person that's trying to flatten my relationship with Star Wars, but I am getting burnt out on it just because it's so oversaturated right now. It's a content mill. Like that's the, the thing is that. Star Wars used to be, and I don't want to say back in the good old days because, mm-hmm. you know, when it was happening, 
you know, the prequels were not well received. And I remember having no. a visceral dislike for for uh, number for Attack of the Clones. I, I kind of wavered back and forth in episode one, which put me in an extreme minority at the time because people hated episode one. And, you know, everybody loved, everyone likes episode three, I think. Um, sort of like the junk food one. All the quotable lines. And we finally get Vader. And um, three know, is get, just like the most of everything. It's just like constantly in your face so that that one feels more memorable. Yeah. Um, which is the total opposite of the original trilogy, which was first one was, holy shit, this is neat. Second one was like, oh, my God, this can be cinema. And the last one was like, eh, at least it didn't suck. Right. It didn't completely just break its legs on the landing like uh, The Rise of Skywalker did, where, (laughs) (laughs) uh, you know, like that The Force Awakens, you know, people, you know, dumped on it because it was, you know, essentially a remake of A New Hope with a new cast of characters and the familiar ones sort of trying to pass the torch. And it was safe. Like the whole idea is like, we want to lure you in with the safety and see where we can go from here. And then Ryan Johnson, yes, and it, as you do it in improv, and ran away with something that was completely new. And, you know, people had a visceral reaction to it. And then in under two years, they had a... J.J. Abrams perceived that he had a course corrected and just, again, break his legs on the landing, just completely landed with a thud because he got really insecure about the future of this thing. And it has clearly like the, the reception that the last Jedi has just dragged this franchise down. And I'm not saying it would have been all smooth sailing if it was received well, because you know, it's still under a conglomerate that is intent on making everything kind of, uh, what's the word homogenous, but you know, like what is the point of this franchise? If you're not just going to let people take big swings in a giant galaxy. And I just feel yeah, like I said, like that initial just complete collapse of storytelling as a result of their lack of planning um, and insecurity just com- has helped deflate Star Wars in my mind for now. Yeah, for all of uh, the, the prequel trilogies, false, and there are many. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I've come around on the prequels in the last several years, um, especially Attack of the Clones. Um, I think there's a good movie in there. I think it's not as buried deep as I thought in the early 2000s when it was released, mm-hmm. but you can't get past that. You know, the green screen acting didn't help the, it didn't help Annie and, 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 uh, Amidala, uh, Padme. Jeez. I'm getting, I'm getting bad in my old age, but, um, it's Monday it, evening. You're fine. It, it didn't help their chemistry and, didn't help the uh, the fight scenes. I mean, the, the uh, end fight in Geonosis in, in the arena where they kill Django and, and there's the big monster fight and Dooku and then it, it culminates like the, the big battle royale scene. Still, you, you see the you see the the um, the green screen gif on Twitter every once in a while, just the guy swinging the lightsabers around, and <laughs> it sort of feels like that at times. But like in buried in there there's you know before he gets all sappy you know hayden christensen plays a really good pickup artist as, as anakin skywalker really smarmy energy which i loved mm-hmm. um, 
There's a good detective flick with Ewan McGregor as, as Obi-Wan, who was consistently the best parts of these trilogy of that trilogy. And I can see why the, you want the allure of bringing him back because, you know, he was, you know, he was good. I mean, in a, in a sea of movies that were bad or good to bad, you know, he was very good. And, and of course the thing that breaks the, it was a swing, big swing because it was a multi-million boring on billion at the time. Maybe it was a billion dollar franchise taking a swing at George W. Bush. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that wasn't the domain of blockbusters at the time. The domain of blockbusters was to be an opiate and to be propaganda for the military. And you left the questioning of authority to art house films, to, um, you, you know, to Jim Jarmusch all the way up to maybe, maybe Tarantino had something to say when he wasn't, um, having gratuitous foot shots. Um, so like that to me was the big swing. Like he basically told a parable about the rise of fascism under somebody today, the, the stupid Democrats in power want to come back to. Mm-hmm. And I just like that, that, that to me, that's why I am much more amenable to soften on the, on the prequel trilogy. Sure. I mean, I think I have arrived at the point where I respect the prequels more than I enjoy them. There's definitely the factor that the nostalgia factor, you know, plays into it. I was three when Phantom Menace came out and six when clones and nine when Revenge of the Sith and so on and so forth. But there's just, you know, I think ultimately it's just the idea that like, you know, they're messy. They're not competently made. It's very much a first draft and a bunch of, people who have a lot of money writing on this, just completely taking George's instincts at very face value and letting him do anything that he wants without filtering him or saying, I don't know about that man, just letting him go at it and finding a place to do that. And there's something charming about that. Just like everyone putting it all on this guy who created the series in the first place. And he hasn't made a film in over 20 years. And he's just having the time of his life trying to construct something in the editing bay because he doesn't really understand dialogue and he doesn't really understand human interaction, but he loves his computers. He loves being on the cutting edge of technology. He loves just messing with stuff in the post-production phase. He just loves it. And in, in that process of filmmaking, he may not understand people, but he knows what kind of things he likes. So he's trying to make that noir film. He probably would have made if he wasn't attached to star Wars forever. And he makes that, you know, weird romantic uh, hitch film with Hayden Christensen in there. And it's kind of, you know, it's it doesn't congeal well, and he's he's no Steven Spielberg or any or Martin Scorsese in that regard, but he he created something that we all remember, and he created something that we enjoy, and on some level, whether it be ironically or a, as a component of our nostalgia, and there are people that genuinely enjoy it, and you know, I admire it for taking a big swing, and like you said, it being those last two films coming out after 9-11 when filmmaking was about to change forever and mostly for the worse, that Revenge of the Sith being one of the few major blockbuster films to not fall in line with that uh, blind patriotism. And I don't think that that necessarily contributed to its, you know, poor cultural, uh, poor critical reception because that was the one that people liked the most, but it did certainly make it distinct among a, 
a sea of shit. Yeah, you talk about they let George Lucas do whatever he wanted, and that's what he admired. But I think it's it's just funny that you know he didn't have his way with the original trilogy. We all know that he there was collaboration, mm-hmm. and one of his collaborators was his script doctor wife, who, yeah. against whom he was um, getting a divorce at this time, and just taking out so much of his frustrations on. So I think. That's sort of it doubled back in the other direction uh, for one. And I, I don't know how it involved Carrie Fisher was with doctoring those scripts. Uh, she doctored the original scripts, you know. She right. was extremely instrumental in the original trilogy. Got to wonder, maybe he should have called up called up Leia. <laughs> <laughs> maybe. Like, I think that people at that point, you know, in the original trilogy, he was just, you know, a guy who had made, you know, up and coming indie filmmaker who did his like mid budget thing with American graffiti. Now he was going into the big leagues with star Wars. And at the time it was the biggest movie ever, but he didn't have the power to be like, no, fuck you. We're doing it like exactly like this. But in the prequels, he was the guy making the biggest films ever. So, I mean, people could go in and sort of clean up after him, uh, punch up the script and Harrison Ford being famously blunt with him saying like, you can write it, but you don't have to say it. Uh, about the the dialogue. So it's just funny watching that relationship change where we all have to indulge the weirdness and not uh, pick up after it. And speaking to that thing I learned recently is that uh, obviously Lucas wanted Spielberg to do one of uh, the Star Wars movies, but because of the way that he did the credits uh, for the Star Wars film, specifically Empire Strikes Back, it was like uh, he puts the Lucasfilm logo at the front and there's no credits until the end credits. And the way that the uh, Screen Actors Guild rules were at the time, you can't do that because he didn't direct uh, Empire Strikes Back. And since his company has the name Lucas in it, they they say, like, you are crediting yourself before you are and not crediting, uh, you know, the directors and everyone else involved in this in the same breath. So he paid the fine for that and had to leave the union because of it. Um, and that means that he couldn't, get Spielberg to do Return of the Jedi like he initially wanted to. And oh, first he <laughs> he hires uh he hires union actors all the time to make his films, but he himself is he's not in the director's guild. And it came up again with uh The Phantom Menace, where he wanted to get Spielberg to, you know, kick off the trilogy, but Spielberg couldn't do it because again, he's still not in the director's guild at the time. So it's just kind of like a that's a huge what if that's been on my mind lately. What if he did curate the talent instead of be the guy behind the camera guiding it that is a good question i mean again there were scripts there and maybe with better direction hayden christensen doesn't you know get lost in the green screen right he, he was clearly intimidated i i didn't seen obi-wan yet i couldn't tell you how he's doing i couldn't even tell you he's playing vader and this is post revenge of the sith where i mean if hayden christensen in the, in the suit you don't really get to see him emote you know He's just the guy in the Vader suit, and they're, from my understanding, they're just using stock uh, footage of James Earl Jones for the voice. It's a similar thing to what they did with Luke Skywalker, where they're using an AI uh, program to generate the voice of Darth Vader, uh, using um, using that technology and filtering James Earl Jones' voice through what they create it, and it creates a very stilted performance out of that. And Hayden is in it, I'll say that, but he's not in the suit. Um so it's not like that they they sell his presence in the series more in the press than it actually is in the series. So it's just kind of 
hard to say um, if it's a redemption arc for him specifically as a performer because he doesn't get a lot of visibility in it the same way that McGregor does. So that's a shame though, because like Hayden Christensen is sort of like I don't know, I don't know if it's it's founded or anything. I don't want to root for the guy. He was you know, he was just sort of thrust into him and Jake Lloyd. You know, people don't like to give it to Jake Lloyd. They're sort of um, among nerds. There's like the anti kid sentiment. You know, fuck them kids. I mean, Jake Lloyd got it much worse. He was like a little kid. It wasn't his fault. You know. Yeah, it certainly wasn't his fault. And then Hayden's like career was put through a loop because of that because he had uh a couple of films that he'd done where he had gotten some you know critical praise for his performance but then right after that he's right into uh attack of the clones and revenge of the sith in his early 20s that's just a lot to to deal with yeah, and now he's in his fourth good the house of sand and fog was one of his films right well which one the house of sand and fog i'm not sure because i don't i haven't seen like the non Hayden Christensen, uh, star, his, his movies outside of the context of Star Wars. So I'm part of the problem. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, no, I can't call this a redemption art for him, but clearly people like him and they are rooting for him and I want to root for him, but this wasn't the, the vessel for that, unfortunately. It wasn't, I was wrong. It's life is a house. <laughs> life is a house. <laughs> I've never heard of this. I, I, I don't know. Um, just that I know it was a house movie. Um, so we sort of get uh, into the Star Wars weeds whenever we talk about Star Wars on, on here. But, um, you know, Star Wars going forward is in a weird new territory where Disney is chopping at the bit to content mill a bunch of stuff. But you have this area, this galaxy, which is, you know, light years across mm-hmm. and millennia old like 10 20 millennia old so we're kind of skywalkered out you know sure i think disney realizes this what do you think is the most likely path for the next big thing that they're going to do that could turn into something culturally relevant. So here's the thing. (laughs) I don't think they have a plan, so I'm not going to speculate on it, but they are clearly throwing, they're throwing lures out there because they have the high Republic stuff going on in the comics and uh, novel uh, sections. They're sussing that out and gauging interest on that side of things. Uh, They're doing the upcoming Knights of the Old Republic remake. So that's another that's another line out there. Um, and then they have stuff going on where they tell stories within the established timeline of the Skywalker saga. They had the Jedi Fallen Order games. They have, uh, obviously, they have <laughs> the retreads, as I call them, with uh, Boba Fett and uh, Obi-Wan. But I really think that the future of this series lied, like they're resting a lot of their laurels on The Mandalorian uh, prior to... Uh, the release of the the rise of Skywalker and then the, the, the critical reaction to all that. So you see that the first season of Mandalorian is just a lot more focused and a lot more lot trying things in an era that hasn't been explored very much more so than they do in the second season when they start bringing, you know, the glup shittos into the fold. <laughs> but 
I think all, all those glob shadows, yeah, Boba Fett and mm-hmm. Skywalker and Ahsoka Tano. And, yeah, Ahsoka yeah. Tano wasn't um Darth uh, Darth Gideon. I mean, not Moff Gideon. Was he was he a existing character as well? Moff Gideon, I don't know if he was an existing character. Um, in he was first any of the, anyway, yeah. yeah, he's first season. He comes back in the second season, but he's yeah. not as you know. And I like Giancarlo Esposito. I'll happily watch him in anything, and I really want him to have a thriving career post uh, Breaking Bad. So I'm, I'll I'll support him. It's but so it's funny. just been, he got his start before Breaking Bad. He was in Once Upon a Time as as the uh, the Magic Mirror. <laughs> it's so crazy. I was like, my wife watched that show, and she was starting to watch it with the kids. My ex wife. I was Way, in the room, yeah. and, I, and I had no interest in the show. But I just saw him. He was talking to. Um, very comely young lady, older lady who played the evil queen. I was like, oh, hey, that, that's uh, that's Moff Gideon. That's uh, what's his face, uh, Gus Fring. That's uh, the guy. Whenever whenever he shows up, uh, things go wrong. <laughs> yeah, and um, way before he was in Once Upon a Time, even he was in a uh, Spike Lee's Do the Right Thing way back in the late '80s, early like it's like 80, somewhere between '89 and '91. He was in that, and um, Samuel L. Jackson was also in that. So it's just kind of wild to think about these you know two actors that did not get their due until years later were just in this very uh this like thing so far removed from the now where they're huge and well the samuel l was in um coming to america he was the uh guy who held up mcdowell's yeah but like he was there but you know he didn't get his big break until uh the the early nineties with everything Jurassic that went Park. on. Like he had, he did like his stuff in Pulp Fiction. He was in Jurassic Park. Uh, and then like well into the nineties, he was still like a, a, a notable supporting player among a bunch of other actors, but he was really holding his own there. And that's just a few years before that global recognition. He was just playing very small, small roles in movies like that. Yeah. I yeah. think you could, you could argue that, you know, Pulp Fiction was was a big movie, you know, um, back at a time when cult movies and and serious filmmaking could you know make bank right. at, um, at at the box office, which is a far gone area. You know, you kind of people yell at Martin Scorsese for me for taking Netflix money to make The Irishman, but you know, wherever you get the avenue to make your art, man. Yeah. So it's like he's got to you know he used to be able to make Raging Bull, Goodfellas, and get paid from residuals now you know he's got to get it up front from the streaming company i don't blame him um this, I try is, not... this is a podcast and a newsletter that is staunchly marty is right even though the guy who writes it and records it has only seen parts of goodfellas <laughs> <laughs> no marty is terrific we've talked about this on the uh back on my podcast and select and start you know love division forum and i try not to hold it up hold it against artists who you know, got to take the money wherever they can get it as long as they get to make their art. I said this, um, I also said this in the Select and Start podcast. Uh, we were talking about, this is a video game podcast where we're talking about movies. What the hell? Um, <laughs> anyway, but the Barry Jenkins getting Amazon money to make the Underground Railroad and Boots Riley, who made uh, Sorry to Bother You in 2018, he is uh, staunchly, staunchly left wing. He is, you know, big as socialist. He says the word and he, you know, is uh, you know a prominent leftist who's had years and years of musical experience writing you know anarchy rap and stuff like that but he took amazon money to make his next feature and that feels you know like a betrayal of those ideals especially when his movie sorry to bother you is about you know people being overworked for a 
big conglomerate that works people like like mules. It's so unfathomable to think about. But like, where else are these movies going to get funded and made? I'm not saying like, you know, he has to do this and it's not wrong of him to do it. I'm not taking a strong stance on it, but I'm just saying like that we don't have the ways that we can make movies now anymore. You can't just go door to door, knocking on people, uh, knocking on doors, asking for money, especially if you are a black leftist. Yeah. 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 It's, it's, it's rough out there. And it's like people, some people say no ethical consumption under capitalism with exasperation in their breath. And some people say it to hand wave everything that they consume. And it's hard to draw the line. You know, it's, it's very hard to draw the line and there's so much nuance in, in the world has to be explored. And we don't live in a world that's built to uh, explore the nuance, especially when you have grievance merchants on either side. Most of them is on the right. You know, they're trying to play gotcha with social, with people who self-proclaimed socialists or leftists or even, you know, Democrats who aren't socialist in, in the least. And they, they yeah, try but- and play gotcha games. And there's like psyops like Amy Therese who say they, they're for the left, but then they'll, you know, post the 14 words or say yeah, that I- Catholicism is cool, which it's never was cool. Even when they were getting killed by the Romans, it wasn't cool. It was just underground. Yeah. I mean, I'll say this, like there's, you know, a huge gulf between left wing agitators and right wing agitators first and foremost, but also just like, you know, the, <laughs> the right wing, like, ah, and yet you own iPhone and participate in society and you have wallets, refrigerator, Venezuela, that, that shit. I mean, it's whatever, but then like these left wing people like are like the, the dirtbag left or some people on some obscure podcast that most normal people haven't heard of. They're just not on the same level as like, Ben Shapiro being on like the front page of whatever Facebook reel your, your dad watches or uncle watches to get the news just being like, uh, well, have you ever noticed that, um, that, that, that socialists, uh, are, are poor and don't, don't work and they stink and stuff like that. Like that, that shit is just way more harmful to, to material progress than I didn't want to say a few shitty leftists. Yeah. No, I know you weren't saying that. I was just like, yeah, I know, I know. Yeah, it's you weren't saying it. I was just like commenting on it. It's just, <laughs> but it's like I don't know. We're getting a lot of purity politics talk, and I don't mm. believe in purity politics. No, it's a dirty, dirty society that we live in, and it's gonna nothing's gonna be perfect, and we just have to reconcile that as best we can, and try and see the best in people with their intentions, and give them, put them in a position where they can do better in the future. Yes, yeah, so my politics aren't purity politics. My politics are whatever Margaritaville is. They're not really, but <laughs> <laughs> it's five o'clock somewhere. It is five o'clock somewhere. I um, I forgot we were what we were going to cycle back to. I, I I put a bookmark in something. We uh, talked about movies, Giancarlo Esposito, Star Wars, the Ninja Turtles game. Ninja Turtles is where we started this all from. Yeah. I take Adderall to keep myself on track, but it's a uh, it's wearing off in the evening. You take Adderall, I take Lexapro. It's, it's yeah, it's, it's a mad, 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 mad world. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> so, um, I guess we can cycle back to the game 
that everybody but myself has been playing, uh, Elden Ring. Yeah. Um, so, any does that have any signs of slowing down? I mean, I know you're talking to someone. I put over a thousand hours into the latest Pokemon generation, so I know something a little bit of something about playing a game until the wheels fall off of it. Is Elden Ring that kind of game? Kind of. I mean, as someone who also played the new Pokemon game, I could see my I could have seen myself playing that for at least double the amount of time that I put into it after the initial uh, roll credits on the main story. But I had moved on to Elden Ring, not knowing how uh, into it I would get. I think that the sheer scale and size of it can keep you busy for quite some time. And the addictive gameplay loop that it gives you and the growth and everything that you make that the the progress that you make and the the way it makes you feel strong and weak and strong and weak and just the the the, the, the genuine feeling of discovery that hasn't quite been replicated in video games in so many years since the initial early Zelda games like again like we talked about on select and start yes. there's just something there's just something novel to all this and that's really what's causing people to just really sink their claws into it and just play it as much as they can before they beat it. And then in my case, I wanted to click new game plus on it immediately, but I couldn't, but I know so many people who have done it because it feels like, what do we do after this? And the lack of major AAA releases in games at this time of year is contributing to that. Some, I don't know if it's going to slow down, but FromSoft has a dedicated fan base and this is a perfect on ramp to get into those other games. I think it's going to last a while. I mean, it's easily my favorite game of the year, and I'm happily able to call it one of my top 10 video games ever. Um, It's hard to, like, you know, recency bias plays into that, but this is, I can't remember the last time I was just so absorbed into a video game world. Like, that that felt more than like a fresh, like a, a breath of fresh air. It just felt like a major step forward. I, I've been there with, a pl- with plenty of games. Uh, one of those is Hollow Knight. Mm-hmm. Uh, which I picked up uh, in Nintendo DM. Uh, our friend Matt uh, sort of sold me on it, and I was like, okay, I'll try. I want to find some some of these new indie, old school indie games to play, and you know, Hollow Knight was just fantastic. Um, they've dropped a new trailer for the sequel. Uh, Silk Song, yeah. Silk Song. Um, did you play the first Hollow Knight? Uh, no, I remember I started playing it years ago, and then it was like a point where I just gotten a switch. So I was just trying stuff out. I promised myself I'm getting back to it because spoiler alert, I'm going to be covering on the show soon, but I've, I haven't beaten it. So I'm going to go back into it very soon and really play it, especially with this uh, kick that I've been on with uh, Metroid dread being like really oh. making me feel like way into Metroidvania style games. And then me being way into souls games now because of Elden ring, I'm definitely going to play Hollow Knight next well, after I beat Earthbound. Yeah, you know, that's actually good because we can talk about um, Metroid Dread because um, I played that game too. It's a game. It, <laughs> it's mm-hmm. the first game we both mutually played that I mentioned so far. So Metroid Dread was very much a throwback game to, um, you know, it's a direct sequel to Metroid Fusion. Obviously, I didn't play right. that, but you know, as someone who who uh, spent several hours playing uh, Super Metroid. 
you know, it was a fun throwback. Um, what were your thoughts on that game? Did, did you buy into the hype that it was maybe too difficult or, or was it just something that you had to pick up? Like, what are, what are your, let's, let's talk about that game. It's just, I, I really liked it. I mean, I loved it. I think that a thing that it has in its favor is just like, it makes the simple act of moving around super fucking fun. Uh, the, the, the speed that you can accumulate as Samus and the, acrobatics that you can use to navigate a room quickly from side to side it makes you more powerful than any other metroid game has made me feel um and how a lot of games just make me feel i think movement is the thing that you really have to nail in a game and metroid dread just did it perfectly um but yeah i like super metroid a lot and i liked metroid dread like metroid dread just felt, felt again like another game it just felt like a fresh air like this is what video games could be and i hope that nintendo continues to use that developer for future games because they clearly have something good going on there and i hope that it it breathes more life into this uh genre of metroidvanias that people seem to be really into yeah metroid is sort of like this game where they they they, they're interested in it and they're not interested in it like they're like super metroid like they, they were riding the high. The first Metro game was a cult, I guess, not really a cult favorite. Maybe at the time it was. It gained steam over the years. And then you had Super Metroid, then Metroid 2 The Return of Samus, uh, the Super Nintendo and Game Boy sequels, respectively. Mm-hmm. So it seemed like, oh, we got a franchise going. Then the 64 comes along, no Metroid game. Samus right. was in Smash. That was about it. It was sort of like development cycles of everything were just sort of. It's sort of like it was going to be a dead franchise like Kid Icarus turned out to be until much later. And then Metroid Dread drops, and it's a breath of fresh air, uh, FPS, you know. You mean Metroid Prime, yeah. Yeah, Metroid, sorry, did I say, did I say, what did I say? You said Metroid Dread. Oh, sorry, Metroid Prime, thank you. Yeah. Uh, Metroid Prime, FPS, you know, it turns out Samus, she translates perfectly into the FPS genre. And then, you know, the, the, Metroid, the Metroid Prime series, and that sort of up and down. Then there was the other end, which I bought but never played, so I couldn't tell you anything about that. And, and so it's just sort of like we're sort of in the lull now. I think Dread was a very good um, entry into the series. One because you know it was like um, you know, the Doctor Dre comeback in two thousand. You know, motherfuckers, I think you forgot about Samus. And <laughs> she reminded people who she was. Um, the difficulty I thought was overblown. I think people saying that oh, it's too difficult. I think they are used to playing, you know, VeggieTales, the game. And I don't say that derogatorily, you know, some people like their video games easy. I'm a proponent for easy mode. I'm not one of these guys, but I also think that if the game is worth playing, it should be somewhat difficult. Right. And I spent a lot of time on the Emmy robots and those were unique challenges that, you know, it wasn't just pump and dump a bunch of uh, missiles into an enemy's gut. Yeah, you know, those were unique. I love those, but I love the pump and dump ones too. You know, fighting Craig. It took me a little while to get the to the, the hang of fighting him again, and that was a good boss battle. I think the only thing I really gave up on was um, the final boss because I just I was just sort of uh, weird. I, I didn't have all the items that I need. Like, I, I could have used a lot more missiles, and then like I also bought uh, Final Fantasy VII and Final Fantasy IX. I wanted to get into those too. Replay those games. You know, I'm a huge uh jrpg nerd at heart mm-hmm. um yeah i didn't think that the uh difficulty was horrible uh it wasn't i won't call it like piss easy i'm not that kind of gamer but no. i'm not the kind of person that 
I'm I'm not a great gamer, but I didn't have a hard time with it. There's definitely uh, peaks and valleys to the difficulty, and that final boss does take a lot of uh, effort. But I think the game's very generous with its checkpoints. So if a reaching a fail state doesn't feel like devastating, and especially with the Emmys, because like if you get into an area where the Emmys are uh, crawling around, like they'll put you right back there, and yeah, you, it, and you know. There are some games where if you lost progress, like and losing a little bit of progress fighting these Emmy robots, which you know can be difficult, to me is a lot less burdensome than some games where you'd have to start like a couple of like a couple of dozen screens back and, and redo a whole lot of progress. Yeah, no, I feel that, and it's even the final boss. Like it's hard. Like that's the hardest part of the game, bar none. But it becomes a game of pattern recognition. And once you find that pattern and you fail at something at least once, you can figure out the, the the solution for most everything about it. So nothing felt insurmountable in that game than a lot of bullshit games um, feel like. So I think the game's fair. That's ultimately how I feel about it. As long as it's fair and it's something that I can overcome, I don't mind it. And keeping that mindset on during Elden Ring helped me help me make it through some tough stretches there. Okay. So you mentioned you were playing Earthbound. I want to close on this game. I wrote about it recently. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, of, of the great JRPGs, uh, Earthbound, I don't want to say it's a cult classic, but it kind of is. Um, it is. It didn't sell very well at the time, but it gained a lot of momentum afterwards. Um, what is it about Earthbound that separates it from other classic JRPGs that you have played for you. At least. So I'm having a great time uh, playing Earthbound. And a thing that really um, makes it stand out to me is how modern it all feels. Even now uh, there's that's, there's that part to it. Now I'll, I'll get to the second part in a moment, but the modernity of it feels, you know, specific to it. The there's like the mechanical stuff to it. Like the fact that you can just, bypass a battle if you are strong enough and the game won't waste your time with it. Things like that, that that convenience of it, that's a big factor of it. There's a, what's another thing? Just the fact that the auto battle isn't just, you know, pressing attack. Like the game actually has like an idea of like what can actually make this battle the fastest possible if you don't need to strategize too much. So there's a middle between, oh, you automatically win and we'll try and figure this one out for you while you don't dedicate your full attention to this fight. So that those are two that 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 forward thinking is is something about it. But the other thing is just like it has such a distinct identity. There's um an absurdity to it that also makes it just feel modern today. And when the people were writing about the uh, reception of Lou Reed, I don't remember which critic said this, uh, but the Velvet Underground that initial album only sold ten thousand copies, but everyone who bought a copy of it bought a guitar. And that's just kind of like the legacy of Earthbound, where that game sold like shit. But everyone who's played Earthbound, and by extension, like some house when however they got a copy on Mother Three, people who played those games, like they carry it with them into their work, into their art. Uh, you see, and I'm not saying that oh, it influenced all these things, but that sense of humor that Earthbound has, and the way that it creates its world, you see it in shows like Adventure Time. That kind of quirkiness in a kind of dark world that has a lot of serious shit going on i love that vibe so much i love any video game or world that feels like i am 
listening to talking heads or listening to Oingo Boingo. There's just like that eclectic feeling of something that um, feels familiar, but is uniquely its own thing. And I think that's as speaking as broadly as possible. I think that's the appeal of earthbound. That's a really good way to put it. I think the music has a lot to do with it too. Um, and it sort of goes everywhere in different, different places. Um, I told you before the, uh, Theme to want it is my um, is my happy place. Mm-hmm. Um, real, real nice, real low key, very hopeful. Um, there's the majestic uh, Metropolis of Foresight. You know, Porky's theme is just as real bonkers, like um, almost like whimsical techno thing. Uh, you know, there's the different like low the lo-fi sort of like machine drones when you're in the in the different layers. It's uh, it's a really good soundtrack. They even dabble in reggae a little bit. It's like insane for the Super Nintendo game to have that sort of textured, layered sound. Yeah, that sound is very detailed. And they are doing uh, basically any genre that you can think of <laughs> that a SNES soundtrack can do. That that It's trying to do. There's some music tracks that are deliberately trying to hurt you and give you a headache. And it succeeds in doing that. It makes a lot of avant-garde sounding things there's a lot of uh like i said sort of like that sound of like listening to a to a weird like talking heads b-side or and then there's reggae and the riffs on johnny be good or uh beatles era rock music yeah the uh that's funny (laughs) you know just sitting there you're, you're fighting the first uh i guess the first real boss who's like this this punk um this guy who uh leads the local gang of, I guess, ninjas. Mm-hmm. And it's like, so they're so bunky. And he's just this guy in the back, in the back. He's a real greaser, just like fixed up his big robot. <laughs> and like, is that Johnny B. Good? And it's like, yeah, <laughs> it is. <laughs> back when people had plausible deniability and like, he could just make song approximations and get away with it. I, that era <laughs> of gaming so good. That's um, Manu and I talked about this, how a lot, so many Final Fantasy themes or like sound alikes for like the final fantasy seven was um like uh, jailbait by motorhead and then um final fantasy six master of puppets the boss themes and it's just like <laughs> like that <laughs> doom like in if you play the original doom game like those songs are all just riffs on whatever the popular metal music was at the time like the doom thing theme that people know it's it's metallica like that shit is you hear slayer and metallica and iron maiden riffs in that fucking doom soundtrack but nobody cared because you're just like rocking out and killing demons yeah those games were the one of the first first person shooters i remember trying to we were uh, supposed to be doing a project in sixth grade over my friend's house uh got paired up to uh and he was just playing wolfenstein most of the time and i was just watching him and yeah killing nazis that's a that's a far-flung fantasy and and lo and behold uh today you know i'm not going to get into that now I already got got political enough. Um, so before we get you out of here, Kiefer, let us know where we can find you online, your presence, anything that you want to plug that's yours or otherwise. Let me have it. Sure. So unfortunately for my haters and losers, I'm there's a bit of me everywhere. Uh, I want to first and foremost promote my uh, podcast, uh, Select and Start, uh, mainly because my good friend Thomas, who <laughs> was gracious enough to let me be on this great show, he is in one of the episodes. He does an episode with me talking about why 
A Link to the Past means so much to him. I think it's a terrific episode. And if you like him, you should listen to that episode. And we like listen. Zelda. There's so much Zelda. I love Zelda. And we, we talked about it so much. We talk about Zelda. We talk about Tony Scott films. We talk about a little bit of everything in that episode. So even if you're not like 100% on video games, if you like just conversations about wrestling or movies or anything, great episode to listen to. So listen to me over at Select and Start. That's available wherever you can stream podcasts basically everywhere and you can follow the twitter page for it if you need a link for it at, at select pod start and speaking of twitter i'm also mainly on twitter for everything else uh, i'm at danny vegito uh i mainly just do riffs and jokes and whine about the state of the world and there's also my youtube channel Kiefer's corner uh that you can find me on i have an episode uh, i have a video i should say on cowboy bebop called the evil within netflix's cowboy bebop where i complain about the rot of streaming and talk about how it impacted a a piece of media that uh, means a lot to me and you can expect another video like that in the future about another sci-fi property that means a lot to me being filtered through the uh the streaming rot so look forward to that in the coming months uh so yeah youtube video uh my video game podcast, my Twitter. Those are the three main things. And that's all I got. And, you know, you can find me here. Uh, please support my friend Thomas. And if you have, if this is like the first time you've listened to his show, please listen to his other episodes. He's a very thoughtful guy. Very cool. Like him a lot. A lot of great guests too. Uh, we talked about Manu a lot. He was a great guest. Trevor Strong, Scott Hines, last, uh, last episode. Mark Normandin, uh, Kiana Williams, my friend Jerry, the joke man from Eagles Twitter, keeps getting suspended because <laughs> he's much too funny and much too good at insulting people who deserve it. Um, so, uh, Kiefer, I want to thank you for coming on. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. And one more thing, since you mentioned Manu. Manu is also on my Select and uh, Start show. So he's in the very first. If you like Metal Gear, he's on there. Uh, oh, but... you know about Manu and Metal Gear. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, but seriously, thank you. It was a great conversation love talking to you and you know always happy to do it with you thank you i appreciate it we try and cycle guests through again we'll get you on again we'll get everybody on again and I absolutely all my guests but uh i want to thank everybody for listening um if you found this just uh, through a link on twitter great thank you uh, i have a newsletter um i try to get three posts out a week um either three written posts or two written posts in this year podcast um this week if this is dropping on Thursday, then on Tuesday you probably read about your the favorite condiment you don't know about yet unless you are already a fan of roasted garlic, um, in which case, good for you. I'm glad you're on the flavor train with me. Um, but I've written about all kinds of other condiments. I've, I've written a lot about cooking lately because I like to cook a lot, and I like writing about it. I like making weird things. I like making – I think even just like detailing the process on things that everybody makes. You know, Sometimes it's good – to, to write about, you know, a cheeseburger that you made, even though cheeseburgers are common because everyone's got a different perspective. But I write about sports. I write about video games. I write about music and movies. I've written about the talking heads. You know, Keeper mentioned the talking heads. I've written about them and I've written about Genesis and Stone Temple Pilots. I, I write about a lot. I, write I read that. Uh, What's that? I, I said I, I read that uh, talking heads thing you did because you wrote about uh Fear of Music, which I own on vinyl. So oh. great piece on that. I like your writing on video games too. Please check out his newsletter. Thank you. 
Um, and, and if you like this episode, um, it's not prerequisite. Um, you can throw buy me a coffee on Ko-Fi. I mean, it's not a prerequisite. I will continue giving you all this content for free because I am magnanimous, but also because I do it for me. But, you know, I'm also magnanimous. I like to share with people. But, you know, if you want to buy me a coffee, say, hey, wow, this, this is good. I think TH should be monetarily compensated for this work that he does. <laughs> Three bucks, not a whole lot. Just buy me a cup of coffee. Um, I spend most of my time on Twitter, probably too much, at T. Holzerman. Um, you get my inane thoughts, mostly on wrestling. I like to watch wrestling and, and tweet about it. Um, you can find me on Instagram where I post all my food pics. And stuff I have pics of my kids. You could find me on Facebook, but I'd rather you not. But no matter what happens, no matter what you do, always remember to keep it a buck.